We're on a mission from God. Wendy? So I got that going. Darling? Looks like I picked the wrong week to quit sniffing blue. Light of my life. We enjoy your films. I am a human being. I thought they smelled bad on the outside. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're re-watching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in real time. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today marks the 40th anniversary of the release of Heartbeat on April 25th, 1980. It was written and directed by John Byram, based on a novel by Carolyn Cassidy, and released by Warner Brothers. Uh, tomorrow, Jordana Brewster and Channing Tatum will both be born on April 26th, 1980. Oh, wow. The character of Ira in this film was a stand-in for Allen Ginsberg, whose estate would not allow him to be represented in the film. Uh, Carolyn Cassidy was, was reportedly very disappointed in the final product, but happy with to see SpaceX's portrayal of her. I am not surprised by that. Yeah. Uh, we start the film with a nuclear bomb exploding. Yeah. Uh, this is another one of those cases where I go into the movie blind. Yeah. And I go, oh, okay. What's this one about? <laughs> Is this, is this how they created Godzilla? Is this an alternate history movie starring Jack Kerouac where the bombs landed in America, right where they built track housing? <laughs> I but. thought I thought that they were building the test neighborhoods. Oh, okay. For, for, bomb, for bomb testing. For more bombs. Because they show the one like detonating in the ocean. Right. And I was like, oh, so these are these are going to be like the neighborhood tests next. But then yeah. people start living there. I was like, no, no don't no, live no, there. Get out of there. <laughs> oh, my God. Somebody's got to tell them. But no, the nuclear bomb is just to indicate that this is immediately post-World War II. So mm-hmm. we're talking late 40s um, into the 50s. Uh, a woman's voice is sort of setting the stage as far as the time period. She introduces Jack Kerouac, who is a struggling author, and Neil Cassidy, who is the son of a Denver wino. She doesn't mm-hmm. indicate what his talent is yet. Um, that seems to be I what he's good at. I don't think they ever indicate what his talent is. I think is. it's stealing cars. Yeah, it was, it, well, well, although he did go to jail for it, so yeah. I mean, that's what's in the in the story. But like, that was one of my main complaints about this film was that, like, we're just we set up these characters in a way where we don't show and barely even tell the audience why they're supposed to be cool or interesting or well i think especially at the time people knew for jack kerouac just because i mean as popular as he is now a household name he was even more so in 1980 specifically yeah but i i guess my complaint is less about jack kerouac because at least right that guy I've heard of, right. <laughs> you know, his his pal here. What's his name? Neil. Neil Cassidy. Neil yeah. Cassidy. I, you know, I didn't know who he was, and you know, and I don't know why he has any appeal in this film because they sort of introduce his character in a way that it's just like there there didn't seem to be anything special about him. So why does he have any appeal to you know to the uh, Sissy Spacek character throughout the film? I have no idea. Well, sure, I, I believe it's. I believe what we're supposed to believe is that he's a nonconformist. Right. And but he's, we, he's also kind of Kerouac's muse. Yeah. And because when we he's... Met, sorry, go ahead. No, no, well, when, and when we meet Sissy Spacek, she is very conformed. Right. She's even getting ready to marry a guy that she doesn't even like because that's what you do. Basically, Neil Cassidy is the main character of the On the Road book. Yeah, I, I got that from, you know... But by, he wasn't a famous by person. By the end of the film. But, yeah. like, I feel like you need to set that character up better because there's really no setup for him as, like, he's he's an awesome guy and he's definitely... There's a reason why he's appealing. No, he's not an awesome guy. He's a yeah. jerk. He's a jerk, and I don't think there is more to that character. There, unless you want to, like, give him laser vision or something and change the story a little bit. Like, he was just... He never really amounted to anything. He wasn't even famous, like after the story took place other than being the inspiration for this character in this book mm-hmm. that that sold like gangbusters but we start with the two of them apparently they already know each other they met through ira who uh we understand now was alan ginsburg and uh basically jack kerouac is played as like the square and neil cassidy is the one who's like teaching him to stop being such a nerd Mm-hmm. And uh, but he realizes when he gets a hold of some of his writing that Jack is actually a pretty talented guy, and he totally believes in his ability to like sell a massive book and become a super famous author. 
Jack and Neil decide to go on a road trip together where they meet Stevie, who becomes Neil's girlfriend in Iowa. Yeah, and before his goodbye kiss to his mother was just a little bit too... Kerouac? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was just like a little bit too passionate. And I was like, oh. <laughs> this is uncomfortable. But yeah, this this road trip that they go on becomes the the impetus of the book it's it's the story that he's writing about originally but changing characters names and then sort of embellishing them um but while they're on the road jack and neil are essentially sharing neil's girlfriend yeah sexually um because he's just like oh well i'm all about free love and if you're interested yeah go for it i don't care and we just cut to like them having sex in the car while neil's sitting on the side of the road uh just totally no problem with it and stevie's apparently cool with it um, the woman narrating the story thus far introduces herself. Uh, she is Carolyn. She is on a date with Dick, who is an old friend of Neil's. Mm-hmm. And this... I don't know if they're just going to him to get money. Because he pulls out money and just starts just saying, just tell me when to stop. Right. Like, he doesn't even... He knows why they're there. They're not there to see him. Yeah, he's like the Baron in Najinsky. That's just like, all right, you guys are artists. I'm going to write the check. Um, but uh, she says in the narration that this is the last time she saw dick implying that she became celibate here in this scene no that this is <laughs> th- that she's gonna leave this guy and go off with these two men that she's just met yeah carolyn actually hasn't entered the scene yet but he, he, this is the two of them are sitting across the table from dick when she walks in right and she basically looks like claire that the ghost of christmas future shows to frank cross and scrooge <laughs> yeah. she's got like this hat sitting on the side of her head she's wearing a lot of makeup and like a fur coat as she wanders over to the table she looks very fancy and very proper and she fits right in with the dick character that's on the other side of this table that they're like high society people that have you know business intentions and they're not that they don't care about philosophy or about life and how real people live I feel like art students in 1950 must have been really different than art students now because I've never seen an art student dressed like that before. Like which person? Like Carolyn. Like Car- yeah, yeah I guess... she's supposed to be studying painting at at the university there, and she's dressed like she's yeah, like a debutante. She's, yeah, yeah, the, the businesswoman. And I, I, I assume she's getting her money for her wardrobe from Dick, who she is currently near near to marrying. Right. And uh, she mentions that uh, they basically, that Neil and Jack ran out of cigarettes and spent the rest of the night staring at the smoking butts in the ashtray and that she was kind of flattered and disgusted at the same time because it's like, I knew that these guys were both poor enough that they would take a cigarette butt out of this ashtray and smoke it because they don't have anything else to like, they, they don't have anything else to smoke and they can't afford more cigarettes, but they're not doing it because they both want to impress her with their ability to not smoke garbage. Um, the and three it of them, worked. It did. <laughs> Somehow they won her over just by not smoking garbage. And the three of them go on a series of, of triangle dates. Um, Neil takes every opportunity to talk up Jack's talent, but when she's alone with Jack, he tells her about neil's past with men the relationships that he's had the his sort of ambiguous sexuality and uh he asks carolyn promise me you'll never take his word for anything multiple times neil reminds women that it is not their place to think the first time he's saying it jokingly to carolyn you're not supposed to think who throws it right back in his face but the second time he basically has his girlfriend stevie by the neck in bed and they immediately make out afterward because she's like that's cool i don't want to think um in an art gallery, Carolyn announces that she is trying to choose between marrying an asshole and accepting a job in Los Angeles. I think the asshole is Dick here. Yeah, I think it's important to bring up a point about the art gallery. Yes, well, they uh, so they, they sort of talk her into Los Angeles in this scene by telling her that everyone's assholes and her asshole boyfriend's an asshole and she shouldn't go to school because they're all assholes. But all the art that's hanging in this gallery was actually painted by the person playing the artist in this scene, and that is David Lynch in an uncredited <laughs> role. Really? Yeah, yeah, so he's standing in the gallery, and he actually painted all these things you see hanging on the wall, which is just like, it's like a white canvas with like half circles and lines painted on them. It's very simple. Yeah, but it that is very much the art of the time period. Right, yeah, yeah. And, and it was actually done by David Lynch. Jack decides he's going to knuckle down and finish his book. Uh, he writes the whole stupid thing on a big roll of paper, 
and keeps it on a spindle when he sends it to prospective publishers like an idiot would. Yeah. He's yeah. mailing them the only copy of his book wound into a big tube. Yeah, I was really confused by this because he takes this tube to all the different publishers and I was just like, why did he roll up these pieces of paper? Because I didn't realize that it. I missed the part where it was yeah. one long continuous sheet of paper. Like I didn't realize that. I, was I, don't, I, don't, I think it was even more so. I think it was paper towels. It was well, like a roll. No, it wasn't like, paper it's, towels. It's, it's it, like it was teletype a, paper. Oh, okay. Yeah, but he kept it all on the roll because he was like, I'm going to finish this whole thing in one go. I'm just going to sit down and finish yeah. this whole book. So he took a bunch of drugs and sat down and finished the book in one sitting, basically. Well, and I pulled up a, I, I pulled up an old interview with him on right. YouTube and he, and he talked about it and, it, it, you know, having to go to a stationery store and get this special paper because he doesn't want to be interrupted in his thought process right. when he's writing a narrative. And there, I've seen pictures of the rolled up story too. Like that's literally how he wrote the first draft of the story. And the first draft is the one that he sent to all the publishers. So he was literally mailing out his only copy of it. So he was very lucky to keep getting it back. Neil and Carolyn moved to California by cover of night, uh, sort of in secret. Jack kind of catches them loading up a car and speeding off in the rain. He decides he's going to meet up with Ira in New York and go door-to-door selling the book that all the publishers keep referring to as a spare tire because mm-hmm. it's a big cylinder. Look, if we could just see Mr. Ogden. He told me to tell you we don't accept unsolicited spare tires. They don't have a lot of luck selling the book because somehow their reputation has preceded them as being extremely rude, angry gentlemen, and <laughs> no one is interested in doing business with them. Uh, Ira and Jack basically have a falling out, and Ira decides he's going to move out to San Francisco to be with Neil and Carolyn. Uh, Ira is insufferable. Yeah. He, <laughs> he shouts his not great poetry uh, as loud as he can in a restaurant. Momus, in whom I am cognizant without matter, like dripping out of the sun, Momus, Momus, son of night, Momus, invisible coalitions, deranged industrialists. And nobody else seems into it, but he keeps going and he's very impressed with his own work. And, you know, Carolyn tries to stand up for like more contemporary poets and he insults her and insults Neil as well. Like basically, you know, saying like, like, why are you kind of, why are you with this person? And I don't think it was even necessarily uh, more contemporary poetry, but it was like, she's more like romantic poetry. Like she likes like T.S. Eliot. And uh, this is very offensive to Ira, who tells her that she's basically wrong and that, you know, he says something along the lines of like vomit that dries to hobo's faces is more poetic than anything Elliot has ever written or something because he's just trying to be provocative and mean. But as the scene unfolds, it becomes clear that Ira is basically just trying to piss Carolyn off because he's madly in love with Neil and they are in a relationship, a long term relationship now. And so he doesn't like that because he doesn't get his Neil time. And he basically just blurts out, well, I'm in love with Neil and he's in love with you. And then she says, am I supposed to feel guilty about this too, Neil? And gets up and leaves. At which point Neil says, hey, yeah, I'm kind of in love with her. So you're going to have to get hip to that. Bye. And walks away. Uh, Somewhere on the street in the city, Neil sees Stevie. Apparently she made it to San Francisco and she's inviting a sailor into a hotel room. He follows her inside and like listens to all the doors in the hallway until he finds the room that they're in and peeks over the top of it to make sure he's <laughs> not got the before right one. not before he kicked in somebody else's door. Yeah. Um, and it's funny because they, they're just like, oh, please close the door. Oh, please. Not not like angry. Yeah. Like, what the hell are you doing? Get out of here. It's like, just please like, don't tell anyone what you saw. <laughs> oh, my God. I don't want anyone to know that I have sex. But uh, but he turns around and he finds Stevie's room. He kicks that door in and he throws the sailor down a flight of stairs. Even though he's not in a relationship with Stevie. He broke up with her to leave for California with Carolyn. But uh, he's still very possessive of her, obviously. In the room they talk and he admits to her, you know, when I said I was just coming out here, that's not really true. I'm completely in love with Carolyn. And she says, I don't care who you're in love with. I just wanted to have sex with you because I'm crazy about you. And they officially begin an affair. Um, And he's like habitually late to things with Carolyn because he's off sleeping with Stevie. Jack is taking a series of odd jobs on the road. Uh, He works on the galley of a ship for a while. He works in some fields. Yeah, I I think he's in Mexico. And then he's like just like 
writing in the bathroom while some guy comes in and starts puking his guts out. Yeah. Carolyn, but, but he still manages to give his mother a forwarding address. Right, he gets he gets a <laughs> birthday card in the mail from her. And it's like how how where are you, or even are you that you have an address? Yeah, but well, the vomiting guy there was actually pretty supportive. Yeah, you know, so and he also gave him a hot tip on some good opium, <laughs> but uh, he didn't take it up because he said his writing is really good shit. So uh, Carolyn comes home for work. And finds Neil, Ira, and Stevie all in bed together and sobbingly announces her pregnancy. And Neil is completely tone deaf about it and just jumps up like, oh my god, I'm going to be a dad. This is great. Like hugging and picking her up. And she's just like slapping and like, no, you don't get it. This is a terrible thing that I've just walked in on. But she's not going to talk any sense into him. And she immediately forgives him and then they buy a house together. Yeah, they basically like settle down. Um, after a very quick conversation, they move to the suburbs and get, you know, move into the track housing we saw after the explosion at the beginning. And, uh, he basically tries to prove himself by being as decent a father as he can. He's like, you know, rushes in when the kids are crying at night. And, uh, but he also has a problem with the temptation of like attractive women in his neighborhood where he's constantly like noticing other women and still going to have some issues with, uh, infidelity probably. Carolyn invites some of their new neighbors over for a dinner. Uh, Bob and Betty... Bendix? Bendix, there you yeah. go. Bob and Betty Bendix. Um, and they're super nerdlingers. And Neil is not having fun talking to them. So he gets more and more awkward and intimidating until they like freak out and leave, basically. Uh, there's a great shot, though, when he's outside that kind of like encapsulates his whole like pressure where he's sitting and like smoking a joint on a set of swings but you see like every house is identical behind him and they're all watching the same tv show in each window right and as you can just the whole neighborhood is just filled with the audio because everyone's watching the same thing at the same right. time so it's all in sync and everything yeah and and it's just like each house is just a copy and you can't tell anything and, and it i really thought it was great because it, it just i get now i can feel that pressure on him i understand what that he's, he's trying bad. to blend in like she yeah. wants because he cares about her. But he also like is completely disgusted by yeah. the conformity. Um, Jack reluctantly takes work on a ship to San Francisco. It seems like he's been specifically avoiding the city right. because he's not ready to confront them. But it was like, you know, you don't have to see them while you're there. Yeah. But I guess maybe he just couldn't resist. It was the temptation. Yeah, I think that's what it was. But he goes there and knocks on their door. Some, I guess he managed to keep a forwarding address for them, too. Right. But he figures out where they live, knocks on the door, and invites Neil out to go binge drinking. <laughs> I did like the line from Neil when he comes out the door and he's like, By God, this is great. I can't bear to drink alone in my condition. My condition. I'm broke! <laughs> I need somebody to pay for my drinks. Um, so they don't come home until the next morning. Uh, it seems like sometime in the night... Carolyn realized that he left and had not come back all night. So she's mm-hmm. already pretty upset. And the kids are all asking her for help first thing in the morning because dad's not there. And uh, they, they come into the home. house. Yeah, they bring a woman home from their from their escapades. And uh, while they were out at night, though, Neil is, is confessing a little bit about marital problems in terms of like he feels like she doesn't respect him because he doesn't provide enough or he doesn't care enough about what she's trying to do. And he says he can't even look her in the eye anymore. And uh, you get a quick line from Jack. How does she look? Like, I haven't seen you guys in forever. Does she Is she still hot, basically, is what he's asking. Mm-hmm. And I like Neil's answer, which is like... Like a married woman. <laughs> don't don't ask me what my wife looks like, because that's irrelevant to you right now. Oh, really? I didn't take that line to mean that. Yeah, I didn't. I, I took it more that, that she just looks worn out. Oh, yeah, I, I t- yeah, I took it to I took it to mean she looks like she's the mother of several children, and she's oh. not that she's not the hot chick anymore. She's a mom. I thought he was saying like it's relevant what she looks like. You shouldn't be asking no, me that question. He, I don't think husband. that's I don't think that's I, yeah, you're I, right. That's that not in character. For that's him. not him. He you're, he's saying she's not hot anymore. That's true. That's what he's saying. But she looks the exact same as she did at the beginning of the movie because this is probably weeks later, if not earlier. But yeah, they're sneaking this woman into the house because uh, Neil basically decided, oh, well, we have a room in the attic, so you and this girl can go up in the attic and stay in that room, and I'll just explain to Carolyn sometime during the day that you're here and you're our guest. Um, But I guess the woman goes home because they get caught in the act of trying to sneak them into the attic. Yeah. 
So <clears throat> I guess the woman just leaves. It was her car anyway that they came home in. So I'm sure um, she'll be fine driving home. <laughs> yeah, she seemed like totally not drunk at all. Neil and Carolyn decide they're going to let Jack sleep off the night in the attic. By the time he wakes up, Neil has gone off to work. And he explained earlier that the work that he does on the trains, that sometimes he's gone for like days at a time. Right. And he was like, oh, this is great. You can stay at the house and you can help take care of Carolyn while I'm out of town because then she won't feel lonely and you can like help around the house the way that I don't. Um, and so when he gets up probably less than 10 minutes from waking up in the attic and coming downstairs, they're already having sex. Yeah. Uh, he literally just walks into the kitchen while she's ironing with her daughter. He starts an argument with her and starts to manhandle her in front of her child. And she turns around and talks about how Neil doesn't respect her and how Neil is terrible and then immediately they're making out and then they're like, all right, let's go have sex. Except then the my most favorite moment of the entire movie, they walk off to the bedroom together. Oh, and, and she then she back. stops and comes back <laughs> and unplugs the iron because literally I was sitting there thinking like, you can't go off and have sex right now. The iron's still on. You have children in the house. Go on. And then she comes back and unplugs yeah. it. And I'm like, oh my God, that's so great. It was, it was a fun, <laughs> fun little detail to include. And I'm sure it was because when she was doing that scene, she was like, Oh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't leave that on. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna go back and unplug it, and they just left it in. Uh, Carolyn invites the Bendixes over again, and Jack makes a considerably better impression on them. Uh, he's very, he's a good host, and uh, it seems like he's like made all these domesticated recommendations for mm-hmm. like products they could use around the home that'll make yeah. their lives more efficient, and they're they're very flattered and interested in everything that he has to say, and th- he's already like made arrangements to like meet up with them later for things outside of this although i think it would still be weird to be invited to a dinner date with a woman and her husband and then to a dinner date with the same woman and a completely different guy well it gets even better (laughs) yeah it gets weirder from there neil comes home and i guess the whole time he's gone he's probably been thinking about jack and his wife being at home and he realizes that she probably likes him a lot more than she likes me and i should be less of a jackass so he comes in and makes what appear to be routine promises that he's going to get better and she even says like oh he promises this all the time and there this is all in front of each other like it's not like they're keeping secrets he says oh i'm going to be better and he's like oh it's it seems like he's really going to be better oh no he says this all the time i do say it all the time but i mean it this time jack basically tells neil i got it i can handle your life the life you started you should go off to mexico like you've always wanted to and he's like, why don't you go on the trip to Mexico? And he's like, I don't want to go to Mexico. This is this is what I want. And he also probably just came back from Mexico. They all start apologizing to each other, sort of. But Carolyn's apology is, I guess I just expected too much of you. And then Neil's response is, No, we both expected too much. Which is basically the same <laughs> saying, I'm really disappointed in you. And then saying, oh no, we're both disappointed in each other. <laughs> so I never read on the road i i don't know really much about you know the the beat movement or anything like this but it just seems weird that this whole movie revolves around jack kerouac wanting to just be domesticated yeah i i feel like um i had a vision of who jack kerouac was in my head that he was like the just like improvises everything and doesn't ever have a plan and doesn't want to be like nailed down yeah he wants to like just constantly be on the move from what I'd heard about on the road. I've never actually read the book, but I watched the movie today and he's kind of the character that's supposed to be Jack Kerouac is kind of a nerd in, in the movie. And I assume the book also, but I was very weirded out the whole time when he's like, Oh, my plan is to just write a really great book and then get a lot of money and be super famous and buy a house and live with a woman and have children somewhere. And I was like, that's not what I thought Jack (laughs) Kerouac was all about at all. Yeah. But yeah, I, I agree that this kind of changed my perception of who Jack Kerouac For was sure. historically uh, depicted as. But yeah, after they uh, express how disappointed they are in each other as as complimentary as they can, uh, Neil and Jack decide to basically uh, split their the husbandly duties, all of the husbandly duties, um, and they're just going to start of the co-parenting movement. Well. Right, <laughs> they're just—they're both living in the house. This whole thing just reminded me of Small Circle of Friends when they're yeah. making the lobster dinner and just throwing food all over the plates. This is like—is this going to be a montage of this? It's of this less thing? obnoxious, than yeah, that, though. <laughs> but 
But um, I did like the the point where because um, they go through a montage of like, oh, it's just a house with two dads in it, and there's a moment where uh, Neil's lying in the bed, and then you see Jack walk through, and he's like, oh, good night, Neil, and he's like, good night, Jack. And then Jack walks up the stairs to go into the attic. And then you see Carolyn come in and you're like, oh, okay, I guess she's with Neil tonight. Like, it wasn't yeah. just a permanent switch. And then she's like, good night, Neil. And she goes and walks up the stairs to the attic like she doesn't want to sleep in the master bedroom. She's sleeping in the attic with Jack. Um, well, I think that she she picks and chooses who that's she's what going I, to be yeah, with. That I, I think the implication is that she trades off all the time. But I thought that scene was going to be like, and here she's back with Neil. And it's like, no, 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 she's still, she's still with Jack. She's just going upstairs. One one quick thing here. There is a shot of Neil uh, teaching Jack how to work on the trains. Like he tried to get him a job at the same place where he works. Um, you saw that or no? I, I don't recall that. But there, there was a scene where they were both on a train in uniform. And it seems like he's talking him through the basics of the job. Like he got him a job doing the same thing so that mm. he can bring in more money or whatever. But it just seemed counterintuitive to the point which was like, oh, I'm not home enough because I work all the time. So let's get a second husband and get him the exact same job, working the same shift as me. It's like no, they would work opposite shifts. So the days that I'm home, but at you're least working, at, and then I'm working. For that scene, home. they were clearly working the same shift. But yeah, maybe that was their intention that they were going to be alternating or something. They invite the Bendixes over again for the third <laughs> and most awkward. I loved this scene. I thought this was great. <laughs> I love the way that they're sitting around the table because it's like a pentagon of chairs and you have the Bendixes next to each other and then you have the two husbands and then the wife in the middle. And uh, they seem like they're not as weirded out by this as they were by Neil alone. alone. Yeah. <laughs> they, well, until they leave. When they leave, the face that they make is just like, oh my God. Yeah, but they seemed <laughs> terrified when they left after Neil was like, oh, I see what's going on. Like, they just freaked out and started talking at the same time, like, panicked. But, yeah, it seems like they're... I almost got the impression that Betty was a little bit jealous of her situation. <laughs> she's like, oh, she's got two men, like, taking care of everything. Um, wait, wait, two men taking care of everything. I mean, maybe that was her perspective, but that's definitely not what she has. Yeah, no. <laughs> But they're getting twice as much done, even if they were both doing very well. They're getting twice the as much not done. Yeah, they're <laughs> yeah. planting pot. In the neighbor's yard, not even in their yard. They were planting it across the street, right? No, they, it was their house. Was it their it yard? It was their okay. house. But they, they kept waving to the neighbors. While like, they were doing yeah. it. Yeah. Um, they read in the paper that Ira was arrested for a poem, which actually happened to Allen Ginsberg. It's, I think it was Howell, right? That That's what the movie is about, is the poem that he got arrested and put on charges for but basically it caused such a nationwide uproar that this this poem could set people off enough that someone would be arrested for it that suddenly the public was clamoring for more of this type of work and all the publishers who had said no to on the road decided like oh we got to find that guy because he was friends with ira and his stuff's probably like that guy's stuff so Mm -hmm. let's call him up and uh that's when jack gets the call hey we have a publisher for you and it's like the first publisher they went to who was like the meanest to their yeah. faces the one who repeatedly referred to it as a mm-hmm. spare tire um and uh they talk him into not only uh publishing the book but going on a whole publicity tour for it which jack is very excited to do and f- also goes against the grain of what i expected from jack kerouac just from what i thought i knew about him but uh he goes on television to kind of defend his work because the host of the show, played by John Larroquette here, yeah. is just ripping into him and his whole philosophy yeah, on life. very aggressive. Yeah. Um, he's basically just trying to embarrass him on television and embarrass the whole movement. And uh, it, they're watching it on TV, uh, Neil and Carolyn are, but they're, they're like, oh, you look so great. Oh, it's wonderful. No, it's great. It doesn't. It, everything's fine. And Jack's not upset about it at all. In fact, he's like out at a fancy restaurant with the host of the mm-hmm. show and they're all they're being all buddy buddy and he tells the host like oh do you want to talk to moriarty because the character in the book is named moriarty that that neil is the inspiration on, for yeah. and uh he hands the phone to the host of the show and neil tells him to fuck off or something we don't hear what he says yeah but... hello <laughs> hey you must be one kooky character mister listen listen i really love the scene in the book when you What he said. What do you think he said? Neil's kind of disappointed 
with Jack at this point. He kind of feels like he's sold out, that he's pretending to be friends with all these like gross people that are pushing the the whole conformity agenda on the people that he lives in the neighborhood of. He decides he's going to go to a poetry reading because he wants to kind of get back into that world a little bit. But he's very disappointed by how things have changed because it's all stuff that's like derivative of Iris' work and Jack's work. And, well, and it's it's that very the beatnik-y kind of... Yeah. Everyone snaps their fingers when it's done. and Right. And everybody's talking like that. They don't even serve like liquor the way he wanted it at the bar. It's like, yeah. no, we have beer and coffee. And he's just like, oh, this is great. This it's is... like Steve Buscemi's character in uh, The Hudsucker Proxy. Right. <laughs> um, but now these uh, these people who know him from the neighborhood are like, oh, this is the guy who the Mor- Moriarty's based on. And that... The character in itself is a celebrity, mm-hmm. and all these people are like, "Oh, then do you have any boot or what does he call it? Boo, boo. boo. Do you have any boo?" And he's like, "I don't know what that means." You no, know, boo, like, tea, Mary Jane. <laughs> yeah, and this is the second time they've referred to it as tea, which I did not pick up the first time they were talking about driving yeah. around Texas tea. Yeah, no, no that's, that's <laughs> nope. gold or no, that's oil. oil. <laughs> Black gold, Texas Black tea. Gold. Texas tea. <laughs> Yes, the only reason that we know is because of the beginning of uh, Beverly Hillbillies. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but yeah, so all these people are like, oh, you're not Moriarty. Moriarty would know every up-to-date code word for marijuana. <laughs> it's like, no, it's not how it works. You don't just like automatically get updates on your phone. People don't have phones that they carry around yet. Um, but a guy asks him like if he wants to hang out. And- yeah, and I couldn't tell if he was... If he was just talking about drugs or if he was like uh, intimating a romantic outing or mm-hmm. what was going on. But either way, Neil's like, yeah, let's let's go, man. Um, and they start driving. And already I was like freaked out by this guy because they set him up as being kind of like creepy a little bit. And he's like follows him out all creepily. And uh, and I'm like, this guy's going to like beat him up or something and take all of his stuff like this is going to be this is going to go wrong. And they get probably a half mile down the road, and Neil has just handed him a joint. And I was like, okay, well, he's got a joint now, so maybe this guy's not going to turn on him because they're friends here. But then it turns out the guy's an undercover cop. Yeah. And he pulls a gun on Neil, and there's already a police car behind him, and Neil ends up going to jail for it. It um, makes so much more sense now because that line is such a such an undercover cop thing to say. Like, I'm just going to list all the names of marijuana in a row. <laughs> well, he wasn't the one who was saying all that stuff. Oh, he wasn't? I no, thought it was No, it was a different guy. guy at the bar, but he was listening oh, in and he was like, okay. oh, this guy's from Kerouac's book. He's definitely like a drug user. Like, mm-hmm. if I hit him up on his way out, we'll do drugs together and then I can get him arrested. But Jack finds out that Neil got arrested and he's like, well, I got to do something about it. And his publisher's like, you're not going to do anything about it because that's career suicide and it's his own problem. And uh, you can send him money if you want to, yeah. but you can't go help him. Um, it doesn't matter because he goes to jail. Right, yeah. Um, For possession. But we don't see any of him in jail. We kind of cut to him already out of jail. Yeah. Jack did nothing to help him. And Neil is now driving just a hippie bus, like a commune bus <laughs> around. And we're to assume that Carolyn's been alone this whole time. Right. Mm-hmm. Because Jack is still away. And yeah, he's he's either in New York or he's like splitting time between New York and Florida. But he decided to hop in a cab and go visit Carolyn. And uh, so Neil pulls up to a payphone, and he hops out and he calls Carolyn to make sure that she's getting her checks, her alimony. Right. And she says, "Oh yeah, like they seem like like they have a good relationship, even though they're officially separated at this mm-hmm. point." She's like, "Oh yeah, I got the check. Everything's great. You're all good." And she's like, by the way, someone's here that I think you should talk to. And he thinks she's talking about a kid at first because he's like, he's like, oh, no, I got to go, sweetie. I'm sorry. And she's like, it's Jack. And he's like, oh, <sighs> yeah, I don't want to talk to him either. <laughs> yeah, I got I got to. I'm sorry. I got to go. You know how it is. And uh, and just leaves. Um, and then Jack leaves, too. And then Jack's <laughs> like, all right, cool. Then I'm out. It's like it wasn't about and either one of them ending up with the girl. It was just it was just. They, they had this one last opportunity at, at connecting with each other and they well, both passed she on. wanted him to know, she she wanted Neil to know that Jack wasn't doing well, that he's looking not well. Right, and she got that message across, I think. Um, yeah, but implying like this is your last opportunity to right. talk with this guy. Yeah. 
And then we get the narrator voice back, which I honestly feel like the movie could have done without completely. Mm-hmm. Um, but the narrator voice comes back to say uh, what I think they're saying the conclusion of the story is, which is that Neil thought that compromises were the end of the world, and so he refused to engage in them, where Jack thought that they were, you had to constantly be compromising, and that was both of their fatal flaws. And then we get the worst, most annoying line in the whole movie, and it's the last line of the film, which was very disappointing to me. But she says, I decided that compromises are like dental appointments. You're damned if you make them. And you're damned if you don't. And that's the last line of the movie. Yeah, it was really that, awful. That you could literally replace the word dental appointments with anything. Yeah. Any noun. Uh, and there, no one in this film had any dental work done. Like, I don't understand where that word came from for this i bet you that that is straight out of the book or i'm something. sure it is yeah yeah and dental appointments in like the 60s early 60s were probably more important than well, they were probably well, much really worse more painful. painful i don't get it i i i'm not saying it's a great choice no I, i'm i'm <laughs> i'm desperate to find some way of defending i just it. feel like there there has to be something like something related to on the road or beat poetry in general or these two men specifically that fits here better than dental appointments which have no bearing on on the story at all uh, but that's where we end the film yep uh, we're moving out of the neighborhood and the three of them are officially separated probably never saw each other again and uh, dental appointments are important but painful so it it only just occurred to me that the beat in heartbeat is referring yes. to beat poetry. It's the title of the book. It's super, okay. super cheesy. Yeah, that's But I rough. feel like it was a condition of the adaptation that they had mm. to keep the title. Yeah, I wouldn't have done that. Yeah, I wouldn't have either. Um, I feel like there's probably even a better beat pun than heartbeat <laughs> that you could have done. I'm, you know, I'm not uh, coming up with one right now, but <laughs> there's just got to be one. There definitely is. <laughs> Nothing beats dental appointments. <laughs> Beats by Dr. Dre. Beats by Dre. (laughs) (laughs) Writer-director John Byram. He directed Razor's Edge a few years after this, which I love. And I definitely recognized locations from that film in this film. And he wrote some stuff, too. Uh, He wrote a movie that I really like in 2000 called called Duets. Duets. I thought it would be good if we said it at the same time. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's a weird little movie, but it's got a good cast. That's all I have to say about duets. <laughs> yeah, it's it's like Huey Lewis playing Gwyneth Paltrow's dad. Yeah, well, yeah, it's... it's but it's directed by Gwyneth Paltrow's dad. Yeah. <laughs> Bruce Paltrow. Yeah. Um, I haven't seen that movie, but I remember my mom watching it and liking it a lot. Yeah, it's, it's, it's got, like I said, it's got people that I love in it, and uh, it's, it's a nice little story. How is Huey Lewis? I, the only work I've seen from him acting-wise is his cameo in Back to the Future. So yeah, that, he's good. Yeah, he, he he. It's a it's it's all about karaoke and singing. Yeah, and he plays a karaoke hustler. Yeah, that's what the <laughs> the, the, the summary was on IMDb. I was yeah. like, what does that even mean? Is there money involved in karaoke somewhere? Uh, well, there is because there's a big there. Are, it's about three groups of people. I feel, I feel weird that we're going into the plot of duets, but that's fine. Uh, it's about three. How can you get that far on this three, podcast? Three groups of people going through different problems, but ultimately that everything that they're doing is leading them to this competition. Okay. That sounds cute. Um, the DP on this film was Laszlo Koufax, who I love. He has lots of really, really great credits. Too many to go through, but a couple uh, special ones to me. Um, he was the DP for Ghostbusters, Five Easy Pieces, Easy Rider, Paper Moon, Multiplicity. Just a lot of really great stuff that I love and watch Close regularly. Encounters. Close Encounters. Uh, there's too many. There's, there's yeah. no way I'm not leaving off important ones. Uh, and he's also one half of that Laszlo and Vilmos I was going to say, I, I became familiar with him when we were working at Laser and they brought that documentary in Laszlo and Vilmos. I think Vilmos passed away before they finished the documentary or before it came out, maybe. That sounds right to me. Vilmos Sigmund, who did like Apocalypse Now and a bunch of other stuff. Uh, the music here was uh, Jack Nietzsche, who has an Oscar for Officer and a Gentleman um, for the uh, for the song Up Where We Belong. He also did the score for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and uh, composed the music for Move on Rouge. 
And then we get into the cast here. Nick Nolte was Neil Cassidy. Um, he was in the 48 Hours movies. He mm-hmm. was in Tropic Thunder. I love him in Tropic Thunder. Yeah. Um, and he very recently did a voice on The Mandalorian. I will take you to them. I have spoken. It's got that voice. It, it, it's it a never changes. Yeah. And he was the, the go-to Hollywood mugshot after a DUI arrest on mm-hmm. PCH up until uh, Mel Gibson's arrest. And then, and then he was home free. Um, Sissy Spacek here was Carolyn Cassidy, who earlier this year obviously portrayed Loretta Lynn for Coal Miner's Daughter. You know her as Carrie and Carrie or Hot Rod's mom. Yeah. Uh, apparently, it's one of the trivia things that she was told that she didn't get the part. Right. Yeah, and I saw she, that. She was I guess she was holding a wine glass at the time, and she was so upset that she just crushed it in her hand. Yeah. And I was like, "What? Yeah. <laughs> like, did it still have wine in it?" I, I, I'm trying to picture the, the, the scenario where she was clutching a wine glass. Because that's generally, I mean, I don't I, drink I wine, think it was probably so. like a weirdly shaped glass. Like, I got the impression that it was not an average wine glass. Because okay. I don't know how you would break it that way. Yeah. But then they gave her, like, when they gave her the part, because they were surprised that she cared that much about it, they gave her, like, another, like, celebratory glass that said, like, that clinched it or something like mm-hmm. that. Because she broke the glass in her hand. I, I don't know. When I, when I read that, even when I was reading that story, I was like, this never happened. Like, it, it, someone it, dropped a glass at a party and they were like, oh, you'll never believe what happened tonight. Sissy Spacek broke a glass because she was so angry and then they gave her the part. Yeah, so it, That's it, not why you give someone a part. It, it's not like DiCaprio in, in Django when he slaps his hand on the table didn't realize that there, the glass was there. Yeah. <laughs> or that other really famous like Hollywood history moment from To All a Good Night. <laughs> when she hands him the glass and he goes to put it on the nightstand and it shatters off screen. Um, everybody remembers that. John Hurd was Jack Kerouac. Mm-hmm. I don't think of him as a Jack Kerouac type at all. I I did not know he did too many things before Big. Oh, like, okay. It's like Big and Home Alone is all I got. <laughs> I, he's always Mr. McAllister for me. I thought it was a weird choice until I looked up the interview with actual Jack Kerouac. I'm like... Okay, it's not that weird of a choice. Okay, the it, performance is similar? It, yeah, he's he's just really kind of like subtle and reserved and um, I don't know, he he did a decent job I think of portraying the character, which I, I at first I thought it was like he wasn't actually doing a very good job, but when I looked it up I'm like, "Oh, that wasn't bad acting. That was actually really good acting." Yeah. That's just what Jack Kerouac is like. <laughs> well, I felt like I was when he was at his most compelling was when he was getting angry, when he would yell at Neil, yeah, or Ira or whoever, and he would just shout these lines and and you could really feel the anger. Like it's more work than I've than I've ever seen John Hurd get like in the Home Alone movies, it's just kind of like, oh, you just toss off a line and then you move to the next well, scene. Well, how many scenes is he really in? He's in the beginning and then yeah. the end. It's, it's, and it's, there's it's like interstitials throughout. Not really, because once Catherine O'Hara leaves him, it, it's he's right, not in the Right, but that's already in Act 3 by the time they separate and she goes with the Polka 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 team. Is that Act 3? Because she's like traveling all over the country before she... Yeah, they're at the airport for a long time arguing over different flights. Mm. But yeah, because she doesn't get in that van with John Candy until like... 48 hours before that. Yeah, but that's after, long after she left them. Because she, she stays at the airport. Well, then they cut back to the family with the kids. I just know that the dad's still in it for a significant portion of the movie. Probably as close to as much as Catherine O'Hara is. But, yeah, he um, he's great. And he did a guest spot on uh, the MacGyver reboot mm-hmm. shortly before passing away. I think he passed away one or two years ago. That's too bad. He was good. And he was Paul in Big was the character. Yeah. The, the the guy who was with the girl that Tom Hanks kind of steals yeah, away. He was and... the Baxter in that movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, Ray Sharkey is Ira, um, who we know was supposed to be Allen Ginsberg, and we will see more of Ray Sharkey later this year in Willie and Phil and The Idol Maker. Uh, Anne Dusenberry was Stevie. She played Tina in Jaws two. Yeah, I don't. I, like, I couldn't think of who that was. There's so many girls on the, on the raft. Yeah. At the end of Jaws 2, so I don't know which one she was. Um, she was also Valerie Duran in Cutter's Way, which we will get to. Um, Tony Bill was Dick here, mm-hmm. uh, the rich guy at the party or on, on the date with uh, Carolyn when she's introduced. Academy he, Award winner Tony Bill. Yes, he actually <laughs> produced The Sting, um, and he also plays Terry Hawthorne, the president of Warner Brothers in Pee Wee's Big Adventure, <laughs> who he talks to about like getting a movie made about the bike being stolen. Um, and he directed Flyboys most recently in yes. 2006. Yeah. I guess that's not that recently. I feel like 
2006 is like yesterday. Yeah. Uh, Richard lost a few years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. During the coma. (laughs) (laughs) I just, because when I think of Flyboys, I just think of, this is the end when James Franco, this is my gun from Flyboys. I keep all my props. (laughs) And Jonah Hill's like, keeps pointing at himself. Oh, bang, bang. It's like, okay, you're really funny, Jonah. We get it. He'll also be back later this year as Niles in The Little Dragons. So stay tuned for that one. (laughs) Richard's real excited. (laughs) Do you know who directed the the Little Dragons movie? Because it, the only copy that we have is like this really bad YouTube rip of it. It looks like sub VHS, like yeah, like, like if they sold kids VHS minis or something like that. <laughs> That's what the quality of the picture. But it's Curtis Hansen directed it. What? <laughs> so it just does, it's uh, it does not compute. But we'll get to that one when we get to it. Uh, Kent Williams was Ogden. That was the very insulting uh, publisher. Mm-hmm. Um, he plays Cabot in War Games. Yeah. He was also Clinton Ferris in season seven, episode twelve, "Off the Wall" of MacGyver. Yeah. Um, and if any of you Phoenix Foundation listeners will recall, he was married and divorced from two love interests of MacGyver, both played by women named Robin. Robin Pearson Rose, who played his landlord at the beginning of the second season, and Robin Curtis, who played his love interest in uh, the Gauntlet, I believe, and then came back for a clip show. Mm-hmm. Uh very interesting to everyone, not just MacGyver fans. Yeah, no. Uh, no. <laughs> Luis Contreras was the Mexican junkie that was throwing up into the toilet and uh, giving <laughs> him life advice. He was a Mexican junkie? That's what That's he's what credited, credited as. Oh, okay. Yeah. I was going to say, I didn't really he notice. He just loves Mexicans. <laughs> um, <laughs> he's obsessed with them. Well, it's like uh, uh, Kylo Ren and The Dead Don't Die. And Adam Driver is like, I have a great affinity for Mexicans. <laughs> <laughs> I love him. He's great. Um, but uh, Luis here was uh, one of the bikers in Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Uh, Jenny O'Hara was Betty Bendix. Mm-hmm. She was the old woman from Devil. Yeah. Oh, in the elevator. Hey. Really? Yeah. I didn't recognize so her. Jesse has a credit with her. Oh, that's um, so funny. Two credits with her because she's also Joel's secretary in Extra. Yes, she is. <laughs> so that's fun. Um, which is my credit with her because me and you both have credits in that movie. Um, Don Brody was the dispatcher. No idea who that is, but he's an uncredited voice in Pinocchio as the carnival barker. Yeah, uh, the dispatcher, uh, uh, the only person that kind of fits that profile was the guy who was telling Jack Kerouac about the ship. He's the only oh, one. Oh, that's possible. Because his voice, like, was like, oh man, that, that guy's got a voice for radio. Yeah. And, and I thought I recognized him too, but I didn't know any of his other credits, so. Tom Runyon played a seaman. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a bartender in Tom Horn. Yeah. <laughs> he uh, will be a bartender in Every Which Way But Loose. Or no, that's the first one. So we won't cover that one. We'll cover the sequel. But uh, yeah, he was a bartender in the first one. And uh, he was also in uh, The Getaway and Convoy. Um, John Larroquette was the TV talk show host. Obviously, Night Court is probably the first thing people go to for yeah, him. Yeah, this was his first screen big screen appearance right he, he had done a narration for something uh oh I, I said he was the narrator for texas chainsaw massacre he's the one who reads the words at the beginning i, I can only assume I, i've only seen the movie once the film which you are about to see is an account of the tragedy which befell a group of five youths in particular sally hardesty and her invalid brother franklin it is all the more tragic in that they were young. Huh. Um, and never again. Uh, but <laughs> it's, uh, That's my favorite horror movie of all time. Is, I can't do it. But everything else was TV movies. Interesting. Uh, until, until this. And yeah, again, I couldn't agree more that Night Court was like, he, he won Emmys for that. Yeah. Um, but uh, he was great on Boston Legal. And he also comes back about a year from now as Captain Stillman in Stripes, mm-hmm. which will be fun when we get there. Um, he also took over as the dad in the Beethoven series after Charles Grodin's two movies and Judge Reinhold's two movies. <laughs> so he was he started in the fifth one. I don't know how many he stuck around for. Um, and then the last credit I have here to mention is Sunshine Parker. Yeah. As the gas station attendant. Uh, he That's was Edgar Deems. <laughs> Edgar Deems from he only, Tremors. He only wears that one damn jacket. <laughs> <laughs> um, he's also Emmett in Roadhouse. He plays a hobo in Pee-wee's Big Adventure alongside Patrick Cranshaw from Private Eyes. Um, and he will be back later this year for a pair of sequels. Oh God, Book 2 and Any Which Way You Can. So that's exciting. I'm excited for more Sunshine Parker. Uh, I wanted to bring up some other people of note. What do you got? Uh, uh, Marsha 
I'm going to butcher her last name, I'm sorry, Nasatir. Um, she's only credited as first receptionist. This is one of two movies she was in. Oh, that was probably Ogden's receptionist that's just smiling at them after he insults yeah, them. She's in this, and then... No, because Ogden's secretary is another, another person. Oh, okay. It says first receptionist. So she's in this movie, and then she's not in another movie until uh, The Mummy, Tomb of the Dragon Emperor in 2008. The is that old... the third one? Uh, yeah. With uh, Brandon Fraser and Jet Li. Those are her only two acting credits, but she's executive producer on a ton of stuff, including The Big Chill and Vertical Limit. Oh, that's weird. Oh, I remember that now because she actually had a picture, but I was like, there's so few acting credits here. Why is there? Why does she have a picture? Yeah. uh, Like an up-to-date picture on IMDb. Yeah, just the two credits. Um, uh, There's this name. I I feel like I know this name, but I didn't recognize any of his credits. John Hostetter. uh, He was in two episodes of MacGyver as Sergeant Rudley. Okay, and he's the beatnik that walks off the stage. Yeah, um, that... uh, but there, there's like stuff with like his IMDb profile page has like Muppets on it, and I was like, was, Oh yeah, I saw Kermit one, on there. Was but... he in one of the Muppet movies? I don't remember, but I thought that was interesting. Um, uh, the bartender, uh, played by Bill Cross, uh, not a lot of credits, but his miscellaneous crew credits were really interesting, where he plays assistant to Nick Nolte. In Farewell to the King, Everybody Wins in Another 48 Hours. And I was going to say, doesn't he have an acting credit in 48 Hours? Or uh, Yeah, yeah, I think he has got an acting credit in one of those two. Um, but he's also an assistant um, to Powers Booth in Frailty, which I thought was uh, kind of another interesting credit. Speaking of the miscellaneous credits here, the guy who goes through a list of various words for marijuana... That guy doesn't have a lot of acting credits, but he directed a bunch of episodes of Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. <laughs> that, was my, that was my next one. That was my next one. <laughs> he directed 38 episodes of Power Rangers and was a credited writer on The Howling. The Howling? The, the Joe Dante Howling? Yeah. It was him oh. and, and um, John Sayles. Oh, interesting. Uh, it was an and. It was Wait, an and John credit. Sayles. Am I messing that up? No, that sounds right. John Sayles has a bunch of good stuff. I didn't know that he co-wrote that. Sorry, I just, I just want to verify. Yeah. Yeah, John Sales. Okay, cool. Based on the novel by someone else. Uh, sorry. So, yeah, that was my next for Terrence. Because oh, I also loved his last name of Winkless. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, got Sunshine Parker. Uh, obviously, Steve Allen, who had his... Plays himself. His, his one, like, peek in the room scene and walk out. Yeah. Um, and I, I just wanted to bring up his most notable credit of... Bart Simpson's electronically altered voice. <laughs> <laughs> In which episode? Uh, the episode's called Separate Vocations, where he's bartending. Bartending? Bartending uh, for, for Fat Tony. Oh, okay. And Principal Skinner goes missing. And, and <laughs> it's, like a, it's like a testimony of Bart Simpson. And it's like the, the voice of Bart Simpson has been electronically altered to sound like Steve Allen. I saw Mr. Bantone there seal the late Mr. Palaccio in an oil drum and roll him off the pier. I kill you! <laughs> the only other person, the last person I'm going to mention is only because it's connected to uh, your cinematographer. Michael Hoover played Bar Patron. Oh, okay. Uh, he's a visual effects artist, a miniature and motion capture artist. And I mean, in like like stop motion capture. He did, he did things on Ghostbusters, 2010, The Gate, The Abyss, and Spider-Man 2. Oh, The Gate. That's, there's some good mo- there's stop motion in The Gate. Oh, my God. It, I just watched it recently. They, they do this really amazing transition of this kid trying to climb out, and it pans down to his leg where the miniature guys are pulling, his le- pulling the leg. It's just it's seamless. Yeah. From, from a full-sized scale to, to the miniature scale of guys in suits, it's like, how the hell do you do that? It's been too long since I watched that movie. That melting phone scene gave me nightmares when I was a kid. Yeah. Um, that was it. There's like a random, bunch of random... No, that's like, good. I like I touching cover. on that stuff. Uh, I did look it up and verify it was uh, Laszlo that passed away before the documentary came out. Oh, it was Laszlo? Not Vilmos? Laszlo died in 2007. Oh, okay. Vilmos died in 2016, and the documentary came out in 2008. Oh, okay. I've got it mixed up then. What do we think, up or down on this one, Jess? Uh, down. Yeah, it's gonna be down for me. Yeah, it's a it's a down for me. I I actually my problems are more with the direction than with anything else. Um, I thought the performances were fine. Um, I think John Hurt actually surprised me with his performances here, but uh, the script is a little weird. the The direction and editing are both odd, like um, scenes especially in the first half of the movie seem to end prematurely or mm. fade to black very suddenly i don't like the voiceover all the way through it and that last line 
takes a bunch of points off for me because it's just so random and weird that no one was like, let's just cut that one off. I feel like this is not the only time that I've had this problem. Like, I feel like I had the same problem with um, Nijinsky, but they're, they're based off of books written by people in the stories, in the books, and, uh, you know, or love interests in the story. And I think that they don't focus on the most interesting parts of the lives of these people. That I'm like, I, I read the... I read the Wikipedia page about Jack Kerouac to try to, you know, prepare for this. And I'm like, yeah, a lot of interesting things happened to this guy. This is not any of them. Yeah, that's weird. Well, I thought it was weird in Nijinsky, too, that they never cover what happened with the brothers specifically. Like, they hint at it a couple of times, and then there's no flashback scene of to explain the references to it. It's like, I could yeah. go look it up if I wanted to, but... You're the one making a two-hour movie about this guy. Maybe yeah. put a scene in there. Uh, the same thing happened with Tom Horn. Like, oh yeah, yeah I'm like Tom Horn had this crazy life, and like you focused on the, the last five the minutes, last of end of you know the end of his life where nothing really interesting actually happened. You could probably make a trilogy out of Tom Horn's life, though. Yeah, I mean, he he's definitely the anti-hero. <laughs> yeah. Um. Richard, why don't you start us off? Where does this go in your letterbox? Uh, I think I'm gonna put this. It 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 passes the Winter's threshold, uh, but uh, I'm gonna put it just above Nijinsky, which is just below Simon. Okay. I I'm putting it in a very similar place. It it does just barely pass the Windows threshold for me. I am putting it below Saturn Three, and above. Uh, North Sea Hijack, or what it was called, uh, folk, folks. 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 Call it whatever you want. And I'm so glad. I, can't, I forgot that that Saturn 3 passed your window threshold. <laughs> I was like, oh, good. <laughs> good. I don't have to disown her as a friend. Um, for me, um, I think that this goes just above, uh, what is it? Little Miss Marker. I almost said Little Miss Sunshine because these posters are so small now. Yeah. Um, it goes just above Little Miss Marker and just below Don't Go in the House for me. I think that's everything for this one. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share with us, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd, where, as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. Please consider rating us on iTunes to help people find the show. And if you take the time to leave us a review, we will thank you personally in an upcoming episode. We'll do it. That's a threat you can take to the bank. Don't take threats to the bank. I don't endorse that. If you're feeling especially generous, you can also support the show through patreon.com slash vintage video podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Where the Buffalo Roam, which IMDb calls a semi-biographical film based on the experiences of gonzo journalist Hunter S. Thompson. We leave you now with the trailer for Where the Buffalo Roam. Hidden deep within the snow-shrouded Rockies, a fearsome creature is now awake and hungry. Ah! Oh, he's mine. Got a grip, Thompson. He is gathering his awesome powers for one final assault upon an unsuspecting world. Ladies and gentlemen, meet Dr. Hunter S. Thompson, the legendary outlaw journalist. What are you doing? Give me some answers. If you what? did. Yeah, okay. okay. Great answers, huh? What? 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 What do you want to know? Where am I? You're at the hotel, man. They broke the mold before he was born. Uh. Bill Murray is the outrageous, the infamous, the totally glorious Dr. Hunter S. Thompson. You know, I, I hate to advocate drugs or liquor, violence, insanity to anyone. But in my case, it's worked. Be proud, man. You're becoming a famous writer. The famous Dr. Gonzo. Here is where the buffalo roam. Buffalo, took you so long. Jeez, what a nightmare here. As your attorney, I advise you to leave this room at once. You find it. He owes me a cover story and I want to get it. Homeboy to T1. Homeboy to T1. Dang it. Ghost Riders, Atticus Prophets. Fire, blood, revolution. Ah! Was he a gun collector? 
You gotta write a story. I need your help. You gotta struggle. You should be part of it. Come on! You left on Tuesday. Today's Saturday. That's weird. The same mix-up happened to me this morning. I thought it was Tuesday. Saturday. Everybody else is here. Abigail! Buck job! Hut! Deeper, deeper, deeper! You better get down the hallway over there and throw a muzzle over that fruitcake. Scream all! If you have a taste for total destruction, behold the invincible Gonzo Warrior. Thompson! Thompson! This is a travesty of As he takes on truth. Forecast is for bad craziness. Justice. You're off this campaign for good right now. Give me your credentials. Give them to me, Thompson, right now. And the American way. Write about it. Tell the world. Tell them the truth. In the land where the buffalo roam. You psychotic. You've done it to me again. But you do your own good. You don't believe.